Hello and welcome to Maru Podcast. Maru is the Welsh word for death and this podcast is all about death, but not real dying. It's something much worse. I'm comedian Katie Gill-Williams and I'm obsessed with stories of dying on your arse, dying on your hoop, tanking, killing the room, eating shit. However it's described, it's that moment all comedians experience. And I get to interview those who have lived to tell the tale. So join me as I ask comedians to recount their worst gigs, what they learned, where did it all go wrong? And crucially, how do they keep going? If you do comedy, watch comedy, or if you're just generally disturbed and enjoy someone else's cringe, then listen as we delve into the world of comedy deaths. so excited to talk to this week's guest. It's none other than my dear friend and also a comedian, Kiri Pritchard-McLean. I'm glad to say Kiri is as sparkly as she is on stage in real life and I think anyone would attest to that. She's also a real champion of um, bringing people up through the industry and using her knowledge and experience to help and guide other people. Kiri's been in the industry for 14 years, coming up through the comedy circuits. And yes, you will see her now on our TV screens on panel shows such as Have I Got News For You, Would I Lie To You. Also a really incredible writer. She's written for a one-woman show at Bristol Old Vic, which is incredible as well, and has made her directing debut. So she she kind of transcends all sorts of different genres within comedy. This conversation, I think, is a real testament to the experience and knowledge that Kiri has. She has worked so hard in the industry and isn't afraid to tackle really difficult subjects in a approachable, compassionate and ultimately very, very funny way. And this, I think, makes her voice distinctive in a very saturated industry. I am so excited for you to hear this and enjoy listening to her death stories. It's hard to imagine that she has died on stage, but she has, and we all have, and I'm really grateful to her for sharing those. Here we go. This is recording now. Perfect. Perfect. And is the other one recording? No. Right, yeah, so get that one going. <laughs> Welcome, Kiri. Thanks for joining me. In my house. In your house. <laughs> Thanks for letting me come to your house and talk to you about dying. Pleasure. When was your first gig, and how old were you? So I did King Gong, which I think is probably my first gig, mm. proper gig. And then I think I did Beat the Frog was my second gig. And then I think I did a thing that used to go in Manchester called Laughing Calves, which was their female comedy night, which was Laughing Calves. It was the one for baby new comedians doing their first or very first few gigs. So, yeah. But the, I think between the King Gong and maybe Beat the Frog was like... A- ages oh, so I think I did those couple of gigs and then I just didn't do anything for like a year I saw an advert at the Frog and Bucket looking for someone to just do be the Saturday girl and answer the phones in the comedy club and I was like oh, if I can work in comedy it'll make gigging easier and I got the job and I now know that it was down to like two of us were interviewed and it was me and Will Duggan and Will Duggan who's a dear friend of mine and a brilliant stand-up his car the classic Duggan his car broke down on the way there <laughs> So he never got to the interview. So that's probably why I got the job because there was no one else interviewing. And yeah, I f- fortunately I did. And and then that was it. I was just like in comedy and 
yeah, that was that was it. Then I was like, I'm gonna. And I remember my first year. I'm very good at like or not very good at. I respond well to targets. I find that easy. Like to it's easy motivator. So I was like, I want to do fifty gigs in the first year because then I've done one a week. And then I in the first year I did like a hundred. And then I was like, right, I want to do this hundred. And then I did like two hundred the second year. And yeah, so it just kept going from there because it's one of those things that before you get into it, it's impossible and it's such a um. You're like, it's like the Freemasons. You're like, how do they all know each other? How do mm. they get into it? How do you start? What do, you know, and you end up doing mad stuff like gigging at open mic music nights because you just want stage time. You don't know who to ask. And then very quickly, and especially if you're in a scene like the Northwest comedy scene, because this is all in Manchester, which is a brilliant city or was a brilliant city to start in. You're just in it then. And then so quickly you get to know everyone and you get work off each other and you start nights and all that kind of stuff. So... That's my origin story. So I'm I'm you 13 years ago. <laughs> and I've got a theory that that's... I might be wild in this, but I think because there's always the element of death in comedy, like, you, nobody knows how a gig's going to go. Mm. I, I often wonder if we all are well aware of that. So it's all like, well, you might be riding high now, but you're never far from your from a death well it's an equaliser isn't it is that like even you know like no one is about like Maria Bamford you know Stuart Lee Mm. (laughs) you know like Chris Rock biggest you know most lauded comics no one's ever passed a death Mm. at all I don't know I think that's actually why that there's a sort of sense of kinship with comedians especially comedians who've done the circuit because uh, I always think there's sometimes you get people who are like big comedy fans and we have loads in common in terms of taste and things like that. And I hate it when they're uh, shitty about, you know, circuit comedians being hack or... And, and there can be comedians I think are awful people and bad comics. Mm. And in my head I'll bristle because I'll be like, fuck you, because I've got more in common with that bad comedian who puts themselves out there than someone who has all the same taste, sensibilities, sense of humour, everything as me but stamps people's hands on the door. Like, mm. they're, like, my... It's so twatty to say, but, like, they're my, like, soldier in arms and I'll have that bond with them even if I think they're a prick and, you know, a bad person. Mm. There's a, there's still, like, a bond there. I have a slight disconnect with people who haven't, I guess, just done things the way that I do. Not that I think it's the right way to do it, but I guess it's just having less in common with them, right? I think it's cutting your teeth. I've always thought that about watching like competitions like X Factor, which I know it's a different thing, it's a singing competition, but I almost feel like those pop stars on that who didn't, you know, sing to a pub where no one's even looking at them. I think there's a different rawness there of having gone through that. A lot of people say there tends to be a bit of a trend when you first start out. You kind of ride high, maybe on excitement or people give you grace because they see that you're new or whatever. So the first few gigs can be great. And then there's a turning point where you go through a lull. Um, I don't know if I'm just articulating my experience at the minute. <laughs> but do you think that's because it suddenly turns serious and you actually start to take this serious? Or, I don't know, do you think that is a, a trend that happens? Or I don't know. I, I can only really speak of my experience but I, I know it's a common thing that your first gig's amazing and your second gig you die and mm. loads of people just never do it again but because I did a comedy course th- this, is, this is what I say because people say would you recommend doing a comedy course and generally I would say 
know unless I knew who was teaching it and was like oh yeah you're going to get loads of value for money there that what it but what it does do is helps you almost leapfrog those potentially first 10 gigs where you are awful and you can't be heard because you're not holding the microphone right and it takes you two minutes to get to your first joke it gets over those and you sort of come to your first gig with about 10 gigs worth of experience in just you know a good comedy course anyway it took me a, too long to die and I was very confident because I was 23 and I was also just very I felt like I'd found my thing I'd done loads of performing so I didn't feel weird about being on stage um so yeah I was just really I was just really confident I was also very happy at the time I was a very like happy young confident woman and then I remember when I died I, well, I actually remember a comic called Rich Wall saying to me, I was doing a gig at Yours Bar, which was my uni, Salford Uni's, like, in-house comedy night. It was every two weeks. And uh, I did it and had a great one. And he was like, oh, how long have you been going? And I was like, oh, this is my, like, whatever, 10th gig. And he was like, what? And he thought I'd been going for, like, ages. And he was like, oh, my God. So I was just getting this reaction from people being like, you're really, like, you're really good. And like, are you sure? Are you lying? How long have it? And I was like, no, this is just like, yeah, this or this is my sixth gig or whatever. And people are like, oh, okay. And then I, then I went to Preston and Frog and Bucket to do their Beat the Frog. It's the only gong show I've never got through. And I died. I died. <laughs> I I remember the beats of the death exactly. I because I used to open on a I I used to just say like, uh, like like I'm Welsh it was like sort of my opening thing and then someone just went in the darkness and I was just like oh, I just didn't know how to deal with it even though in my head like now I'm like well I'll always have something to slam and I think yeah. I d- would say something to that now but you'd have a, a backup for that heckle in your brain but I was just like uh okay and then <laughs> did my normal first joke just absolute silence and then when you're like what mm. but that's my joke that works and it just was achingly bad and I remember genuinely trigger warning wanting to kill myself I remember it was I remember being on the train the platform to Preston and being like I'm gonna throw myself on the train tracks because I'd found my thing and it had been taken away from me and to the point where someone had asked me I've told this story before but like someone had asked me oh what's your worst death and I maybe was about like, I think this is about 15 gigs in for my first death. So let's say eight, nine gigs in, someone said, oh, what's your worst death? And I went, oh, no, I don't do that. Because <laughs> I genuinely just thought like, oh, I don't actually, people like me don't do that. Like, I know you guys do, but I just thought it was incredible because everyone kept talking about these deaths that would happen. I died the other night and all this thing. And I was like, what are they on about? Like, it's just a thing I don't do. Mm. So I just didn't, I didn't understand it. And it was like a pure like manifestation of, of privilege. And yeah, and then being like having that thing. So I think the longer you go before your first death, the worse it is when it comes. It's the hubris that you have. And I remember, so the boy I was going out with at the time, I said, I'm going to contact everyone who I booked in for a gig and pull them tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, in fact, I said, when I get back home. And he was like, just wait till tomorrow. And I was like, no, no, it's happening tonight. I can't ever do that again. And I slept on it and I was sort of like, okay, I'll just do these ones in my diary and then, you know, you have an okay gig and then you're sort of back to it, but... Flew too high too soon. Unbelievable. (laughs) And Preston brought me back down to earth as I always knew she would. And also, do you know what was really bad is 
my um, like a load of people from my uni, but not people I was necessarily mates with, but sort of had mutual friends with came down. And one of them was on, who's a, who's a pal of mine. And uh, he came up, ripped it one. And he'd like never done stand up before. And I was like, I was the girl who'd been doing it for a bit. And then this guy comes along with what I now recognise to be stolen material. <laughs> but like, just, you know, force a personality, great performer, did it, ripped it, had a great one and won. And then I like, I remember one of the girls that he was with, who I didn't particularly like anyway, sort of, she came up to me at a later gig and was like, that I had a really good one at. And she was like, oh, you were good tonight. Ooh. And I was, I was like, don't remind me of the death. I've just had a great one. But like, it felt, you know, when you're dying in front of people that you sort of know that you're not that, not that big a fan of, you're like, oh God, it just felt excruciating. It felt like absolute and pure humiliation. So that was your first one. You took it well. Yeah, yeah. Tried to kill, yeah, nearly, nearly killed myself. Yeah, yeah. What do you class as a death? Because there's different, I guess people have got different versions of a death. It's not so much as like a death thing, but I have a high bar for doing well. And if I haven't had a great one, it's not as bad as a death, but it might not, it might as well never have happened. So like there's a gig I did, in fact, I did the comedy store on New Year's Eve and I hadn't, I was really rusty. I hadn't gigged in like two, three weeks and it's because I had a dropout and I was down there and I was like, if you want, I can come and do it. And then I went out and everyone else had been, it was quite like match fix. So for maybe Jeff Norcott, who's saying he hadn't gigged in ages. Um, and it, was, it was sort of fine. And I just sort of like lost it because I hadn't gigged in ages. I was like, when you're so match fit and you know what comes next and you can play in the room, but I sort of like went into a bit and I was like, oh no, they're, they're not keen on this. And like, you know, it was a bit that was, for, it's that thing where you see it a lot when people come back from Edinburgh, where they start doing the 20 from their show and not your 20 from the club. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they're so funny watching people like have to quickly change gear in September because <laughs> they're used to like fanning around for an hour on stage. I was a bit like that. And I hate it. I came off and I had like I get really flushed on my chest when I've not enjoyed it, um, like when I'm panicked basically. And thankfully, I had something with a high neck otherwise It's very distracting. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I ca- yeah I came off stage and I was like, let's get out of here. That felt like I absolutely died. My partner was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, that was. But it's because I know how well I can thump that room. So mm-hmm. anything that's not that is. I don't want to talk about what just happened. And the bars obviously moved, at, like, throughout your career, I guess. Yeah, that's actually the kind of the shit thing is that, like, I think anyway, it's different for everyone, but in what happens to me is when I have, like, the gig of my life, that's now the bar. It just bumps the bar up. So the more, you know, I definitely see it from when I started going of, oh, what I would consider, a, like, a win, because I'm like, oh, i got to laugh at that and i laugh at that. And now I look back and be like, well, you've got two laughs. Go home, <laughs> quit, save everyone their time. Whereas now if it's like, if I don't have a laugh every few seconds and it's not big laughs at the asides and, you know, it's like big, you know, and it's not applause breaks. I'm talking about like when I'm doing my best 20 at a club kind of thing that I'm like, why did you bother? Mm. Oh, yeah, all within your control. But how much do you think the death is out of your control then? And where, and can you win it back? having gears Mm. so you know like if they don't go for like glossy routines you've got to be able to do a bit of silly and if they're not that bright you've got to be able to do a bit stuff that's very accessible and if they don't like rude stuff you've got to be able to flip and do it clean and if they're actually got a short attention span you've got to be able to get them back with crowd work and then go into material or you've got to be able to do 
what feels like a blistering set of material just on crowd work. And these are all like gears. And some people only have first gear. and But they're amazing. And like, you know, some people can just like, I've got my thing that I do. And they're usually like amazing and impenetrable and, you know, untouchable. But But my way of surviving, certainly being like a woman that started when I did and the Northwest Circuit was like, got to give myself gears so learning how to compare was part of that i remember seeing early days roisin conaty do a gig in manchester it was at laughing cow she was closing and i remember her sort of being like she was saying something about she's being amazing and she said something about it being eggy and it was a bit eggy because someone was like heckling i remember her saying afterwards i didn't slam them because i always feel like you've got to have like three big laughs under your belt before you you put them someone in their place. Oh, the maths to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like having an actual rule of like oh, I hadn't earned it yet. Mm. So that that means that you have a can have a slightly difficult interaction with that person because you sometimes people just need bopping on the nose and you, can't, you haven't earned a right to do it yet. Mm. So you have to sort of negotiate and that can make you look slightly weak and you know there's there's lots of stuff going on. Some deaths are unavoidable. If they if you're on like that's why I don't do corporate gigs. Because nearly mm. all of them are like a how-to guide on how to die <laughs> sent on after a raffle and they've all turned their backs on you. Mm. So <laughs> so bleak. <laughs> raffles, man. Never follow a raffle. <laughs> I think it's also the uh, the clinical lights in the corporate gig. I don't know if it's the word corporate, but it just makes me feel like they're not going to turn the lights off. You're in a conference room. But, yeah. But well, what, also they have that low lighting so you're not really lit. Mm. And there's a dance floor between you and the round tables. <laughs> so it's like, what, are, what you know, because we, we want people close to us. We want, you know, there's, there's a reason why great comedy rooms always kind of look the same. They've got low ceilings. They've got, like, warm, like, you know, they've got a bouncy back wall, brick wall, because the lefter hits the wall and bounces back at the audience. Like, mm. it's, not, it's not a mystery. So when you put something in a lofty, high-ceilinged conference room with a, you know, a bouncy dance floor, but also carpets, which sucks up the sound, mm. you know, and you're in front of a just a roll-down projector screen with bad lighting and a terrible radio mic that keeps cutting out if you touch the bottom of it. Mm. Like, it's, it'd be a miracle if you did, you know, if you had a good one. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's given me Dim many flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, one of the great things about working at the Frog and Bucket is I could just go down and watch as many shows as I wanted. So I'd work in the office and work late and then I'd like potter down and watch people do Thursdays, which is always a quiet night, a lot more couples in and then two people doing 10 minutes trying out for the weekend. So you would see them, which I think is the hardest gig to do in Manchester was the Thursday 10 to like see if you're ready for the weekend. Doing that next week. So Yeah, but, but <laughs> like five. The, but like they, you know, now they've changed the system now. There's yeah. fives and they've just changed it and... But it was, like, a really tough gig. Yeah. Um, because it's actually easier on a weekend. Um, so I'd go and watch, who, what mistake did they make? And, oh, okay, oh, oh, that was great. Why was that great? So you get to watch a lot of it. Mm. And I remember when, this is years ago now, when he used to wear a all-in-one, like, leotard. Tony Law was closing on the, the weekend and I can't remember which way around it was, but one night he died and one night he had an unbelievable gig, like an unbelievable gig. Um, and the night that he died, he did his time and then was walking off stage and they were like, good, pissed off. And he ironically encored himself and brought himself <laughs> back on. And he was like, you guys! And won them round. 
won the round in that bit where he came back on because they were so like, how dare you? <laughs> that they like couldn't, they could not respect him for yeah. like bringing himself back on after all the jeering and things that they were like, I just think they really respected him. Mm. And he, you know, like he'd probably, it didn't make up for what happened before, but I would say it was like an away draw. It takes, well, you said to me, it takes 10 years to get your voice yeah well it um, could take i could say i think it takes 10 years to be excellent mm. and pretty much like i mean some people just will never be but like if you're going to be excellent i think after 10 years is there do you think you've found yours or has ha, well how's it changed what do you think your materials changed do you think yeah i think when i first started gigging and i was quite sort of dark and high status and let me tell you, the Northwest Comedy Circuit did not want that from someone with... <laughs> my accent at the time wasn't as, like, mank as it is now on stage. Mm. They did not want that from a quite well-spoken woman in mm. her early 20s. So I just tried to become a lot more likeable and I, like, rubbed all the corners off and anything was a bit dark when... Um, and I think, weirdly, I've gone more back to the person I was when I first started gigging, like... That instinct so was, like, the purest version of what I wanted to do comedically. Mm. And then you know, gigging on the circuit can rub off the corners of that a bit and gigging in quite a male-dominated area and, you know, like, doing a lot of clubs and working class people, you know, that kind of stuff that... And now, like, I will sort of... Ign- what I was doing in the first gigs, which is, like, acknowledging and, like, flirting with my own privilege as a way of trying to satirise it and go, I am aware. Like, I was doing that in the early days just badly. I, d- I had a whole routine about going to private school and how I didn't agree with private schools because kids weren't bullied enough in them mm. and that they were too supportive. <laughs> mm. And, you know, like, I had loads of loads of gear like that, which is, like, absolutely how I would approach something now comedically. But then I was like, people do not want to hear that I went to a private school. They just hate me immediately. Rightly so. But, like, you know, I just didn't know how to do it. And so I just went to trying to be very likeable and, imme- and go, this is what you want from me and I'll make fun of myself for being fat. That's what you want from me. And I went through this big... About three years in existential crisis of comedy where I was like, I kind of hated audience. I just kept having like meh gigs, mm. which are worse than deaths, I think, where you're just like, yeah. That happened. That happened. I mm. hate those gigs. A good one's like, oh yeah, great. Or, oh, I've got that new bit to work. Great. That's all I'm going to focus on. And a death, after about an hour, I'm already on the WhatsApp group going, "You, I can't wait to tell you <laughs> yeah. how much I ate shit tonight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when it's met, it's bruising. And I went through six months, possibly even a year of that. And I was like, I'm going to quit. Mm. And I, what I couldn't get is like, I was giving audiences the stuff that they wanted. I'm giving you middle of the road, like observational stuff about this. You like, you know, and I thought it wasn't great material, but I'm like, this is what you want. And I think audiences can tell when you don't like your gear or you don't think it's very good. And then I just sat down and was like, in fact, I like I think I emailed Stuart Goldsmith and I was like, and I saw people who'd started at the same time as me doing stuff I thought was trash, yeah. bad and mean. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to be that. And he sent this really lovely message back being like, just focus on being really good. And as long as, you know, 100 people think you are good... Like, be 100 people's favourite comedian, basically. Mm. And so I was like, what do I want to talk about? And I remember writing all this stuff about um, the EDL, who were big at the time. You know, mm. like, when I was studying comedy, the BMP were very, you know, like, it was, it was a lot of stuff about that. And I started to, like, 
write some stuff about that, which was kind of tricky for some audiences to listen to. Obviously, it wasn't pro-EDL, just to make that clear. <laughs> um, and trying to satirise that and sort of, you know, like, debunk their... So we take the phrases that, they, you know, like, what's that thing that they say that just because the dog's born in a stable doesn't make it a horse. So I had a routine about that incredibly racist phrase. And it, they, it wasn't necessarily going any better, but I came off being like, that was good material. And as soon as I get confident with it, and be- I, I was suddenly like, that's it. I'm being the kind of comic I want to be. I'm being more interesting. And I'm if I just match that with being able to be funny, because you're also learning how to be funny at the same time, mm-hmm. that's who I am. And I just worked really hard on that. And then suddenly, after not much time, like a month or something, just everything clicked. Started having really good gigs, started getting paid work. And I just snowballed from there. And that wasn't necessarily finding my voice, but it was taking a step towards what it was, mm. as opposed to just go, I'm just going to try and be successful at these gigs. I'm like, I'm going to try and be successful doing stuff I think is good. When you've had a death, have you noticed how other people's reactions are in the green room to you? Do you think there's different styles of people interacting with you? Like, I'll give you a really quick example. I remember the MC basically saying, the Sarah Milken rule to me, give yourself till 10 tomorrow. And I was like, well, you've just corroborated that that was a death. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, that must be a strategy. So I wonder if there's other ways people i hate the the um i never say it's people but like the cunts move because this is a thing that like comedians say thinking you don't know what it means in comedian language which is uh did you enjoy that which means you just died are you aware of it right so when people say did you enjoy that what they they don't actually mean that they're trying to work out are you self-aware enough to know that was a death okay so it's it's a it's a certain generation of comic that goes on or also like, oh, they sounded like they're having fun. And that can be either way. If you had a death, they're mm. looking for you to acknowledge it. But sometimes that can be them begrudgingly. What they should be saying is, you absolutely roofed that. That was amazing. Yeah. Like, oh, they sounded like they enjoyed it. Is them being like, I didn't enjoy it, but they did. Or they've given the audience the credit. Yeah, yeah. For the enjoyment. Yeah. And not, yeah. You well done. It. They brought a good gig in front of you. Yeah. yeah. You know when you're having a rough one and you're like just thick or whatever you're telling yourself in your head and then you do one joke and they really laugh i hate that because i'm like you can do it then <laughs> so that's just me then you, it's, you've got it in your wheelhouse it's just not in my wheelhouse to make that happen consistently yeah yeah i that's really tricky when you you die and you think oh they're just twats and then someone goes on and annihilates it and you're like oh boy or worse they annihilate it and you go on and absolutely stink up the room oh it's just, that's why comedy is amazing is because you never complete it and no one's ever above a death and there's so there's just so much at play there's so many different things going yeah. on and um that's what i mean and that's why i'm so interested in there's so many different types of death as well yeah like i guess i would describe death as it feels silent it's not even it's not even heckled or them being objectively horrible to you. It's just the silence of it, I think, is the hardest. Yeah. I don't know. Or when they look like it feels sorry for you. Mm. Like, you know, when you catch their eye and they they smile, like they've been <laughs> just staring at you like they're worried about you. And then you catch their eye and they're like smiling like, don't, don't, it's all going to be okay. This will be over soon. Yeah. Do you think there's a death zone? You know, on Everest, the death zone where you're most likely <laughs> to lose oxygen and die. Do you think there's a any point in a set where like if you lose them at the opening or it could be it's really hard to get them back if you lose them at the top Mm. and that can be like 
you fuck around too much with a microphone and then they go, they don't know what they're doing. It's not slick, is it? No, it's not slick. And that slick, those first few seconds, they're judging you and you're like, oh, amateur. Okay, mm. now we feel sort of uncomfortable. I find the top the hardest bit. Yeah. I hate, I almost don't like the jokes that I put in there as well because I think the strategy that I use is belittle myself, so... Yeah, so they know I can make a joke at my expense and I'm not a threat. Have you still got the same opening joke for, like, four years? Me and my mates are talking about it's like, yeah, I've had it for ages. And it's the whole thing of, like, once you get that thing that sets it up and just lets you fly, all your other stuff changes all the time. And now I don't even know what my opener is. But there was years when I was just doing the circuit where I was like, that joke does so much heavy lifting. Mm. And I don't want to... If it ain't broke... You know, like, I'm so scared to change it because I can change anything that comes afterwards because that joke has bought me what I need to get on and mm. crack on. But I'm worried if I change that and I have changed it before and I've said something different and it's not right and then the whole rest of the set is harder. So I think finding your opening joke is the hardest thing to do. Do you think time in the industry, experience in the industry, reduces your chances of death the longer you've been in it? 100%. 100%. Yeah. And there's some people I think, and there's some people I know are pretty undiable acts. I remember saying, you know, lovely Janice Connolly. Mm, yeah. I remember saying to, um, I remember saying to her about she's got a brilliant character called Barbara Nice. It's really warm, really daft, loads of really great jokes, loads of set pieces with the audience. Seen her crowd surf to let it go from Frozen in the Frog. I've seen her. Oh. There's a spiral staircase at the Frog. I've seen her go down it on a tray from the bar to Robbie Williams has let me in, but saying you on her stomach. <laughs> unbelievable scenes yeah. and I remember saying to her and she, she'll play like bingo she'll like I got a free bentos here who's got it she'll play like bingo with them and then she'll do a raffle with the audience it's unbelievable she's so fun and joyous make them do a dance routine together and stuff and I said to her I can never imagine Barbara dying and she went she doesn't really <laughs> <laughs> I was like yeah fair play and you don't have to name names what's what's the worst death you've witnessed of my own or someone else's? Someone else's. I just, I just find it so fun. Like, I know it's horrible to experience and go through, but it is, it's quite enjoyable to watch. Especially, like, a cocky one. Yeah. Backstage cocky one, and oh. then you're like... Oh, my God, I've seen some belters of that. Especially doing Beat the Frog. You get a lot of them in for, uh, March, because mm. they sign up for their New Year's resolution in, in uh, January. Then there's a massive drop-off of people who, like, lose their ass, But occasionally one gets through. And I remember this guy turned up in a flat cap and, like, a... <laughs> dead yeah <laughs> yeah a leather jacket that was like buttoned up all the way you know when it's almost like a suit jacket mm. and uh, it came, you normally what used to happen is all the comics would like cling at the back and beat the frog in one corner and he'd sort of he's like where you on where you on <laughs> like oh it's like the older guys well these like sort of fey 19 year old boys in tight t-shirts and he's like where you on in like you on first are you you want for you scared just think, like getting in everyone's hands <laughs> he's like you could rip what you're gonna say you written what before? No, I mean I'm just gonna go up and freestyle you absolute pussy. And he's just being a dickhead and he's like, I don't he's like, I don't need to suffer it. Everyone's going through their notebooks and he's terrified. He's like, Yeah, I'm not writing anything me. I'm you know, I'm funny, so I'll just get up there and go. And then of course we're all sort of like watching him when he goes up on stage and he immediately well, first of all he was like like, Alright, dickheads and it's just loads of nice students, so they're like, Oh what? And then this guy was like, Give us give us a cheer if you saw support United and they're like some people are like yeah and he's like oh fucking shit I'm city city and like one other person shouts it back and he's like yeah fucking city till I die and then you can just hear his mouth drying and him gulping as he realises like 
He's got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, it's just him being like, what, what's fucking shit And it's just, like, getting, like, more and more sporadic. And then you hear that ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. And he's like, oh, it's fucking pointless, this. And just, like, storms off. It's, it's great. When dickheads die, it's delicious. Yeah, there's, um, I think we all deserve that now and again. <laughs> That was the incredible Kiri Pritchard-McLean. I loved that chat so much. As always, funny, insightful, and just so generous with sharing her knowledge about all things comedy. I think we can all take a moment now to remember the guy in the flat cap. May he rest in peace. Join us next time. It's going to be another great one. And I don't know what you do with these potty things like and share and tell people tell people that would be great um and what's the big one subscribe subscribe and i will see you next time maru heads